Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. I'm Emily Tampkin, U.S. Editor, and you're listening to World Review from the New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Thursday, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. And every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. Today, I'm speaking to Samir Saran. Samir is the president of the Observer Research Foundation, a think tank based in New Delhi, India. It is no secret that Joe Biden and the United States has made more emphatic outreach to India, in part to counter China. But how is this perceived in New Delhi? We'll speak with Samir to find out. Emily, I think um, you can assess this in a number of ways. The first, of course, is uh, it's a confirmation of what some of us uh, were discussing over the last few years. Uh, there seems to be a broader American consensus on their assessment of China. Uh, many of us were beginning to sense that it had changed and uh, it was bipartisan in character, that new assessment. So uh, that could be one assessment. The second, of course, could be that the security establishment in D.C. was uh, determined to make sure that whoever came to power uh, would uh, follow their advice on, on their engagement with China. And the third assessment could be that the Chinese are leaving no American president too much room to maneuver. It is the Chinese who are shaping American policy to Beijing and in many ways also deciding international relations uh, in the Indo-Pacific. In some ways, all of us are responding to Uh, the muscular emergence of China in the recent past, and that could be the third assessment. I think historically in India, there has been, at least in some corners, um, both a sense that the Americans are not trustworthy, reliable partners, and also, relatedly, that the Americans are going to get India into a military conflict that India does not want to be involved in. As the U.S. um, really delves into or, or, or focuses on the Indo-Pacific? And is there still that, that fear, that wariness? Or have current events and Chinese behavior um, made those concerns secondary? I think uh, uh, much of what you sometimes may hear in Delhi or in DC could possibly be remnants of the 20th century. Uh, it, people holding on to positions of the past. Uh, people who have written books on India's behavior or American attitudes of the past wanting to still be relevant in the 21st century. I think there is a more pragmatic assessment of each other today. Uh, We know that we don't share 
uh, a typical Atlantic style relationship. It's a more Asian relationship, uh, more grays than black and whites in our relationship. But certainly it's a modern day contemporary Indo-Pacific partnership, which is not going to be a typical alliance or a treaty alliance. It is going to be far more uh, a partnership, which is uh, very uh, specific in, in what it seeks to achieve. I'm not saying that we trust the Americans uh, all the time. Uh, for example, I think any Indian establishment would be very wary of trusting America vis-a-vis its role in Afghanistan and Pakistan and some other parts of the world. But we are far more certain of them in some other geographies. So I think it is a, a more real relationship. Uh, we are not uh, blindly believing in each other, uh, but we are certainly more sure of each other than we ever were. And I believe this is going to get stronger. There are a couple of potential pitfalls to this relationship that I want to ask you about. But first, I do want to ask, since you mentioned Afghanistan, um, how the withdrawal was perceived. Well, those who uh, believe uh, DC is untrustworthy had a flag there. And those who believe that DC uh, is responding to its pragmatic realities uh, assessed it in that manner. So I think it was a divided um, public sphere or the the strategic sphere in New Delhi. uh, to me, I think Americans had to leave. Uh, could they have left better? I think all of us would agree, yes. It was a bit of a messy withdrawal. I don't think any amount of spin can change that. Uh, we could have done better uh, and uh, we could have been consulted. Uh, but uh, having said that, I think perhaps uh, the Afghan track uh, always saw America maintain a certain distance from India. And uh, be it Trump or Biden, I think that was true in, in both the terms. Uh, presidential terms. And in that sense, it's not surprising. It's not that we've been let down heartbroken because America did not consult us. I don't think they ever were very, very open with us on what they were wanting to do. What do you think of the tone that um, President Biden and Vice President Harris have taken toward Modi and other Indian officials so far? Has it been appropriate? Has it Have they not raised enough concerns? Have they been too condescending? You know, I think both our countries are mature enough to appreciate that we have uh, domestic constituencies who listen to us even as we engage in foreign policy. And I think uh, most of us would agree that there has hardly been an interruption uh, despite the change of uh, presidencies. Uh, I sense the importance of each other and the warmth in the bilateral uh, remains um, largely similar. So the other, not elephant, but let's call it bear in the room is, uh, is Russia. Um, it does not actually seem to me that, that the close India-Russia relationship is proving an impediment to the U.S.-India relationship, despite concerns in a variety of corners that that it would, right? It sort of seems that the U.S. has decided to appreciate the fact that India has this other relationship, um, and India has, has clearly not let its relationship with Russia stop it from becoming closer to Washington. But what is your read on this uh, on this? Russia punches far above its weight in terms of global affairs, uh, be it the Middle East, be it Afghanistan, be it even the Indo-Pacific in the future. Russia is going to remain a relevant voice. And we do not want a situation where we paint Putin into the Chinese corner. I think that would be disastrous for us. So we will have to find ways in which we can accommodate uh, Russia's role in the world in our scheme of things. Now, I think India has a role to play there. Uh, we have established over the last decade, a decade and a half, uh, with our American partners, that uh, uh, our relationship with them 
is independent of what we do with Russia. I think that is now uh, visible to all in DC. Uh, we have not let that come in the way of being more bold, more ambitious, more forward-looking with our American partners. And I think that should give us uh, uh, a space to perhaps now get into a, a more nuanced conversation with America to ensure that we allow Putin the room to maneuver when he deals with Xi. Now, I think a stronger Russia-India relationship, a growing Indian market for Russian exports, uh, economic partnership with Russia between Russia and India and a growing economic partnership between Europe and America would allow Putin not to become uh, too fixated on Beijing as the uh, resolution for his challenges. And I think that's an opportunity as well. We need to have that conversation. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to the New Statesman on digital, in print, or both for as little as one pound a week at newstatesman.com slash subscribe. That's just $2 a week in America. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. India has, has long been at one of the, one of the, earliest and loudest voices speaking about the need to take substantive action toward climate change. Is there a sense in Delhi that the United States is not carrying its weight on this issue? We were uh, actually quite proud of being the global trade union on on uh, uh, climate debates. Uh, we were the global opposition leader. Uh, we don't want an agreement unless you do X, Y, Z. We will not move forward unless you give us X, Y, Z. You know, we have been uh, strong uh, proponents of uh, justice, equity, and action by rich countries. And I don't think that is going to disappear. But even as we do that, India has built a market case for its own green transitions. And if you see the the the, the exponential growth in our renewable energy installations in India and our ambitions to reach a, 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 a very large uh, share of our uh, future uh, power landscape through renewables, 
tells you that there is an economic case, a market case, an entrepreneurial case, and a recognition that our economic growth, jobs, and um, uh, uh, our future development trajectory would be served by going green. So I think uh, from the US, uh, uh, India would look to uh, one big uh, uh, partnership possibility, and that would be to work together and create a new um, framework that would catalyze uh, trillions of dollars of uh, green capital to flow into green projects. And we are not talking about aid or grant. We are talking about commercial capital from banks, from funds, from uh, instruments. We are talking about creating a whole new green financial ecosystem that can cater to uh, what people suggest is the two to three trillion dollar uh, green capital requirement of India in this coming decade. Uh, and that could also reach uh, some of the other emerging geographies that desperately need um, infrastructure investments and, and development capital. So I think that is one big area where India and US can partner. I think there might be some who look at India's rhetoric on climate change and on current levels of pollution in India and say, well, what a minute, like there's there's a gap here. And I don't I don't think anybody in India would deny that there is a gap between where you want to go and where you are. How, how does that gap close the gap closes like it was closed in new york and london uh, by 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 uh, more advanced cleaner greener systems so uh, you know we are going to have to go through that decade of pain and uh, we could shorten the the period the period by by accelerating our transitions and that acceleration is dependent on the financial flows we are able to attract to move into these cleaner and greener projects and uh, 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 that will allow us to retire some of our um, uh, very high emitting industries and and energy plants. Last question for you. So you and I last saw each other over a year and a half ago when I had to flee ORF in Delhi because to get back to Washington because of the pandemic, um, which I don't think either of us thought would still be ongoing. Um, It is. What do you think either for India and the U.S. in relations between the two or for India itself um, has been learned? In, in that time because of the pandemic? I think we all need to understand that uh, we were unprepared and um, uh, all our theoretical uh, uh, planning uh, went for a toss when we were faced with a systemic risk unleashing itself on, on our societies. And therefore, uh, we need to go back to the drawing board. And that's the first lesson that uh, uh, we don't know how to respond to a global crisis. The second lesson is that if climate change is going to unleash far bigger forces, uh, then, you know, we should act now. I think that's uh, as a follow-up to the first lesson. On the on New Delhi, I think uh, for us, um, uh, there were two shades which were quite visible in our uh, experience with the pandemic so far. The first, of course, was uh, the, the heartening display of uh, uh, state capacity the diplomatic architecture that we have built up over the years, all of that came into play. Uh, The big aircrafts carrying oxygen cylinders across the world as we needed it or as someone else sought it. Uh, You saw that large capacity, but we also saw uh, uh, important need to invest in the state capabilities. Once we get the oxygen cylinder to our shores, can we take it to the bed in the hospital? And I think, so I think it also taught certainly India, but I think many parts of the world, the, the need to invest in certain specific kind of infrastructure that is more human-centric. While we, while we were able to create the shock and awe of big movements of material and, and, and equipment, 
many of us still need to invest in the last mile infrastructure that serves the individual. So an individual first infrastructure plan for the future becomes something that we need to think about. And guess what? It is absolutely consistent with the sustainable development goals that we all want to achieve and consistent with the green transitions that we are embarking on. So the new infrastructure and SDGs should should ensure that we place the human well-being at the heart of it. And I think that's the main lesson from the pandemic so far. Uh, but like you said, it's not over yet. I think any conversation uh, on the U.S. and India that brings it back to the human is a, you know, it's it's a fitting end um, to to end with a call for humility, action, and to focus on on humanity. So I will leave it there. Um, Samir Saran, thank you again. Thank you, Emily, and stay well. This has been the World Review from the New Statesman. You can read all our international coverage on newstatesman.com. And if you are a listener of this podcast, which you are, you're listening, or a subscriber to our World Review newsletter, please take our survey. It's at newstatesman.com slash world survey. That's one word, world survey. We are expanding our international coverage and we want our readers and listeners views. So please do take our podcast and newsletter survey. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend or even an enemy and rate us and leave a nice review. Our producer has been Adrian Bradley. Team will be back on Thursday. I'm Emily Tampkin. Thank you for listening and until next time. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.